You see, there's only one thing wrong with the Davis baby. It's alive. It's alive. Don't see it alone. Oh, feel better. We all feel better in the dark. In conclusion, if you find yourself falling asleep, having a dream child in the middle of a nightmare, while you're trying to wake up when you're being chased by a guy with razors on his fingers, and you don't know it's a new nightmare, and then you got Jason, he's got an axe, got Kelly rolling, she's not saying, nightmare baby, nightmare baby, nightmare baby. Nightmare, baby. Hy Once upon a time on a Super Bowl night Two guys from BK brought the points of life Gave you some previews and some laughs Wasn't no big thing, no one thought it would last Then one started growling at the mention of a chick The other guy would lose it every time he got pissed Next thing you know, they got a good fan base So they said, what the hell, let's continue the pace No stone uncovered, they will take on a topic Might bring on a guest, and together they rock it Cause they're in like Flint, two mices are cool If you don't know the beautiful one, they'll take you to school I'm talking about Tom, DJ, and Derek Ferguson The best podcast out, hands down, it's set So in the tub, in the car, if you're chilling in the park Welcome to another show of Better in the Dark We run this motherfucker now. Better get out of here before you get hurt. Put it back. Now put shit back. We stay claim on this motherfucking place, man. I'm gonna get it once. It was big and there was something in it that looked like an egg. But it couldn't have been an egg. <laughs> there aren't any eggs. <laughs> no egg that big. So, Derek, when did these giant flying lizards start hanging out here in Brooklyn? Probably about the same time that we had all of these Harlem criminals riding in the streets, <laughs> taking the, the, ones, hospi- the ones dressed taking in the, the hospitals. Yeah, and, uh, <laughs> the ones dressed in the scuba gear. Right? Yeah, the ones in scuba gear. Yeah, better not call any cops though, because that might end up being messy. It might even be a little bit manic. That's right. Sorry, guys. I, I got here. I was busy feeding my monster baby. Ah, monster baby! Did your mama have a baby? Yeah, your mama. And did it come out looking crazy? (laughs) 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 Ladies and gentlemen, as I'm sure you've figured out two things in our usual clumsy manner. One, this is probably another induction into the Hall of Great Great Men. Yes. And two, we have a guest host direct from the wilds of Canada. Where I think that our new inductee made the stuff, if I remember correctly. Ah, yeah. You know, I didn't even know that. The host of Dread Media, which is available every Monday on the Earth2.net feed, and also through DreadMedia.com. The one, the only, Des Reddick. Thanks for having me. I'll pretend that we haven't been on the phone for three hours. Yes. We find that it helps to preserve the illusion. Yes. <laughs> well, just be thankful you weren't Michael Bailey that one time we were doing the two-part Superman episode. We actually put him on a mountain. Yeah. <laughs> Said we'd bring him some food, and then a week later we come and got him. Yeah. <laughs> for those of you who don't know, Des is the patriarch of the first family of Better in the Dark. And at the end of the show, when you hear the little outro, and you hear that little adorable voice going, Go yeah. watch that movie. <laughs> Well, that's a little Reddick. <laughs> yeah, it is, yeah. <laughs> but, girls, he's all alone today. <laughs> Now's your chance. I love that Tom has been trying to set me up. <laughs> Listen, man, don't let Tom get you in trouble. <laughs> Because he won't let you sleep on his couch. You know, you'll oh. come. Hey, man, listen, I need a place to Well, nah, you can't stay here. I don't have a couch. See what I mean? No, it's true. I don't have a couch. Oh, you mean you really don't have I a really couch? I really don't have a couch. Oh. <laughs> See? I don't have a couch for you. <laughs> yeah, right. That's what I thought. I don't have, no, a, couch. I don't have a couch for you. you. Don't no, have a I couch. literally don't, don't have, have a couch. couch. Once again, you learn something new every day. Just like it bedazzles horns and everything. So Des is here with us today, and we just finished doing the Obscure Horror Movie episode, and Des was good enough to stick around for us to induct into... Well, this is an episode that Des insisted that he had to do with us. (laughs) 
There was no way we were going to do this, folks, and not have Des present. I basically had to force myself into this episode because there's a movie in here that I absolutely have to talk about or my head will explode. Fair enough. No, that's for the Cronenberg episode, Des. (laughs) We are talking about, actually, a person that we have talked about quite a lot on Better in the Dark Mm -hmm. because he is one of my favorite screenwriters slash filmmakers, Mm -hmm. one of Derek's favorites Mm -hmm. as well, Brooklyn Boy. Yeah. Like us, who is still, God bless him, out there in California right now. He's probably right now driving to a studio in his car full of scripts in the back. That was the story that made me fell in love with the man we're talking about, Larry Cohen. He would go to the houses and offices of various directors and producers pitching his script. And if he had one and he pitched it and they didn't like it, he would say, hold on one minute. He would run out to his car, open up the trunk where he said he had nothing in there, not even spare tire. He just had scripts right. he had written, grabbed another one, and went back. And he said, and he kept doing it until they found one that he liked. He would not leave until they bought a script from him, yes. which to me says a lot about the work ethic of the man and his sheer vitality and force of will that he was going to get his foot in the door no matter what. Now, my favorite kind of Larry Cohen story comes from an interview given by Fred the Hammer Williamson. Ah, to, I think it was Shock Cinema, Steve Mm. Pachowski's fanzine. Fred Williamson had said to Steve Pachowski that he loved Larry Cohen more than anybody else because he learned everything that he knew about movie making from Larry Cohen. In the next issue of Shock Cinema was an interview with Larry Cohen, and the first thing Larry Cohen said was, could you please tell Fred Williamson to stop saying that? (laughs) I like that he sued Fox for (laughs) the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, believing that they ripped it off from his script, or his idea anyway, uh, of cast of characters. I guess maybe he didn't know that it was based on a comic book or maybe that they bastardized the film version so badly that it looked more like his idea than it did Alan Moore's, (laughs) but uh, I find that kind of funny. He's not a man who is unfamiliar with the law. No. (laughs) (laughs) Once I remember the public theater here in New York, they did a Larry Cohen retrospective, and the Village Voice here did a piece on it where they were talking about how Larry Cohen was a filmmaker who worked outside of the system, created his own auteurness, yada, yada, yada. And then they mentioned that for some totally and bizarre reason, the writer had read that he did scripts for the TV series The Defenders and thought that meant he actually wrote scripts for the comic book The Defenders. <laughs> I'm just trying to imagine what a Larry Cohen Defenders would have been like. Or a Larry Cohen adapted film for The Defenders. <laughs> Michael Moriarty is Doctor Strange. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> oh my god, I'm just trying to picture this now. <laughs> Fred Williamson is the Hulk? <laughs> is that who what we're course, going there? Which, of course, has to have all the women's. Yeah, he's got to get the women. Yeah, he's got to win, right? <laughs> he's got to beat the bad guys. <laughs> we're just casting the Larry Cohen version of The Defenders. <laughs> Oh my god. Because I was telling Des that when the public theater did a retrospective of Larry Cohen, the Village Voice read that he was a uh, staff writer on The Defenders, the TV show, and thought it meant that he created the comic strip. The comic book, The The Defenders. Yeah. We were just trying to figure out how Michael Moriarty would be Doctor Strange and Fred Williams would be the Hulk, which meant, of course, he had to get all the women. Well, of course, naturally. That's in his contract. I watched a documentary about black exploitation movies one time on the Independent Film Channel, and Fred Williamson said quite explicitly that was in his contract right. that he was in there. That one, he couldn't die. Mm-hmm. Two, he got the girl mm-hmm. at the end, and there was a third clause he had in his contract or something. I, I don't remember what it was, but it was three clauses that had to be in his contract. He had to be the hero. That's what right. it is. He couldn't be the bad guy. He couldn't be a drug dealer or anything like that. He had to be the hero. He had to get the girl, and he couldn't die. Okay. So as we usually do, we're going to do a little bit of biographical notes. Larry was born on July 15, 1941. He majored in film at City College of New York. Apparently, even from a young age, he exhibited a voracious appetite film, visiting movie theaters at least twice a week, most of them being double features. Thus, the young Cohen apparently watched at least four movies a week throughout his childhood. Sounds like me. He was particularly attracted to hard-boiled and film noir movies that featured actors such as Humphrey Bogart and 
James Cagney, and was a fan of director Michael Curtis. His career in film began during the 1950s, where he worked for the NBC Television Network. It was while working at NBC that he learned how to produce teleplays, and shortly after began writing his own television scripts. He solely created the TV series The Invaders, and also scripted episodes of The Defenders and The Fugitive. Another thing that might be of interest, because we're going to be doing this series soon, he wrote the screenplay for The Return of the Magnificent Seven. Ah, yeah. The last one, Yul Brenner played Chris Adams in. Yep. And created Branded. Yeah, that was yeah. Chuck Connors with him. Exactly. Branded. What do you do when you're brand Now, although he continued to write TV and film scripts during the 70s, particularly episodes of Columbo, he started directing with the film Bone. To prove you're a man, you must wipe it with your hand. hand. <laughs> In 19... That's what you gotta do. <laughs> when you're branded. Okay, I'm done. Okay. <laughs> After Bone followed the film that pretty much put him on the map, mm-hmm. Black Caesar. Ah, yes. Yeah, that's my jam. <laughs> <laughs> Where else, ladies and gentlemen, will you hear Desmond Reddick straight from the outskirts of Vancouver, Canada? Straight say, out of Vancouver. Yeah, <laughs> that's my jam. <laughs> straight out of the hood of Vancouver. Black Caesar, <laughs> a black exploitation reworking of the Shakespeare play Julius Caesar, was so popular it was followed up almost immediately with Hell Up in Harlem. Yeah. Which, of course, got around the idea that the main character was murdered in the first <laughs> film by just saying, hell, he got better. Uh, yeah, sure, why not? It's Fred Williamson. Yes. Right? Yeah, it's Fred Williamson. Williamson. Yes. Yeah. As if this wasn't good enough, then the following year comes another film that is one of his most famous films and probably put him on the map for life. It's Alive. Yeah, it's Alive. About a baby whose mama was acting crazy, so it's Alive. When the baby came out, it's Alive, <laughs> yes. And meanwhile, while he's doing this, he's doing screenplays for other people. Yeah, I mean, that was a workaholic. He's a pretty prolific screenwriter. Yeah. Then we had God Told Me To. Ah, okay. Private Files of J. Edgar Hoover, which did not feature Broderick Crawford in a dress going, I'm a pretty lady. <laughs> I'd buy that for a dollar. It's Alive, It Lives Again, mm-hmm. Full Moon High. Q, I love this. He gets banned from shooting in New York because he's a person he's never believed in getting permits. So he's shooting the climactic scene of Q at the top of the Chrysler building mm-hmm. where people are shooting guns. It's during midday, lunch hour for most people. Most people are looking up and seeing people shooting guns off of the Chrysler building and thinking it's a terrorist attack. Everybody calls the cops. The cops come out. It's just a bunch of guys making a movie. The New York City Office of Film and Television Production says, you're not allowed to shoot here anymore. Yeah, you don't have a permit. So what does Larry Cohen turn around and do? Make two more movies in New York. Yeah, of course. (laughs) Special effects and perfect strangers. Then came the stuff. It's Alive 3, Island of the Alive. Wicked Stepmother, the film where he killed Betty Davis, literally. (laughs) You ever heard this story? I believe I have, The Ambulance, original gangsters. Ah, yes. Original gangsters is a badass movie. And most recently, the Master of Horror episode, Pick Me Up. Original Gangsters was yeah. kind of like the godfather of the yeah. Expendables. Yeah, yeah, now that you say that, for sure. Because it got together all those great black exploitation stars and put them in one movie for the first time. Some of them had acted together in different movies, but this was the okay. first time they got them all together now, in one movie. Check out some of the films he wrote from around the same time. So I'm looking at starting with Black Caesar, Hell Up in the Harlem. A number of episodes of Columbo. I, the Jury. The film that he was kicked off of after one day of shooting, so he was, I'll show you, I'm going to make you. This was the one with Armand Asante yes. playing Mike Hamill. Yes. Okay, yeah, that was a good one. Bestseller, which I've talked about on the show before. Mm-hmm. Maniac Cop. Maniac uh, Cop 2, Maniac Cop 3, Badge of Silence. Electric Boogaloo. The Electric Boogaloo is Maniac Cop 3, Badge of Silence. The Body Snatchers, the version that was directed by another wild man of the cinema, Abel Ferrara. Yeah. Guilty as Sin. That was one of, what's his name, sister? Not Jennifer Tilly, uh, Jennifer Tilly's um, sister. No, no, Guilty as Sin was the one with Rebecca De Mornay is a... No, the Body Snatchers. Oh, the Body Snatchers, yes, that's the one with Meg Tilly. Meg Tilly, right, okay. Meg Tilly. Guilty as Sin was one almost as hot as her sister. Yes. <laughs> Not quite, but she come damn close. Yes, Guilty Sin was the one about Rebecca de Mornay as the lawyer who is asked to defend the murderer played by Don Johnson and mm-hmm. his plastic surgery. <laughs> Mainly his plastic surgery. Ed McBain's 87th Precinct novel, 87th Precinct Heat Wave, perhaps the closest American movies has ever gotten to doing an accurate 87th Precinct novel. Uncle Sam, the film about a Vietnam vet dresses up as Uncle Sam killing people. Didn't go over big in the Bible build, I bet you. Phone booth. 
That's the one with Colin Farrell. Colin Farrell, yeah. yeah. Cellular. Part of his own trilogy. His own yeah. trilogy. <laughs> yeah, no, the, you, we laugh, but it's the true. trilogy. Because the last <laughs> film came out about three years ago. Okay. Message deleted. <laughs> okay. Oh, I guess it's a quadrilogy. Cause oh, you're thinking of Connected, right? He has to be the only guy on Earth who's written a quadrilogy of films that center around the telephone. Around the telephone. <laughs> now, see, that takes talent. <laughs> So this guy does not like to sit on his butt. And the thing is, I don't think he's ever applied for a permit. As kind of crappy as the ambulance is, there is that amazing tracking scene at the very beginning. It lasts for like, it's in like about 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. Where it follows Eric Roberts around New York City. We're not talking about just like an empty New York City. We're talking about a busy lunch hour street of New York City. Well, we're talking Fifth about Avenue. like the 1970s, right? This well, is 1990. Okay. But remember, okay. he's not doing this with permits, so he doesn't have the cooperation. And he didn't get, okay, and he didn't get a permit for that. Yeah. Wow. You know, I'm kind of surprised because back in the 70s, and they, you get away with that kind of guerrilla filmmaking pretty much. There were all kinds of productions that were going on. People yeah. would just set up and film. But in the 90s, he got away with that. I'm kind mm-hmm. of surprised, yeah. I think that's his thing. He believes just making movies. He doesn't believe in going through hoops or doing things and appeasing people. That's what his scripts are for. He writes the script, right. sends yeah. them off. Kind of like what John Cassavetes yeah. did, because John Cassavetes acted in other movies. Strictly to get financing for his own projects. And I guess Larry Cohen falls into that, that he writes scripts for other people, so as that he will get the funding and financing to make the movies that he yeah. wants to make. Which, to me, isn't a bad way to live. Although, I gotta admit, I am somewhat curious as to why, outside of Pick Me Up, I don't know, maybe it's because he's getting older, he doesn't want to do it anymore. He doesn't direct anymore. Yeah. Directing is hard work. And we're talking about a guy, you got to remember something. We're talking about a guy that goes back to the 70s. So he's been doing this for, what, four decades? No matter how much you love something, eventually, yeah, you kind of say, maybe it is time to, because it's a lot of work to make movies. And even now, more than ever, now directors have got to deal with things that they never had to deal with before. They got to negotiate for the foreign rights. They got to negotiate for the pay-per-view rights. They got to negotiate for the DVD rights and the Blu-rays and all this other BS that they never did. And then there's the insistence that's got to have CGI in it. Larry Cohen never heard of CGI. The thing about him is that I think that he may have been turned off during the period where if you just went out and made a movie, it would have been very difficult to get distribution. But had he sort of pushed himself through it... Basically during the 90s. Had he gotten himself to directing films into now, mm-hmm. I think that he could find easier distribution channels who wouldn't pick up a new uh, Larry Cohen film, or he could kickstart it himself or whatever. Maybe he gave up on it a little too early because he's always the kind of guy who goes out and no permits. He just goes out and shoots it right? and worries about putting it out afterwards. And he's been very successful doing that. He's just, just as far as the ones he's directed, he's actually lined up a, pr- a pretty damn impressive filmography doing that. And it seemed like too much work for him. Because I can't even imagine what it must be like. I look at certain directors and I really have to admire them. I was watching the one I was telling you about, Palm Wonderful. Right. The greatest movie ever sold. During the course of that movie, Morgan Spurlock went to talk to certain directors. He talked to Brett Ratner. That was the guy that surprised me most with his candor right. and his honesty as to what you have to go through today to get a movie made. Maybe Larry Cohen. And I'd rather see a guy like that go out on his own terms right. than be squeezed out or pushed out. So we talk about specific films. Well, let's let our right. esteemed guest host yeah. rattle off. It There's is one film he said that he's dying to talk about. Die No I, More. I do want to go a little bit chronologically first because I finally was able to see Bones last week. That's an odd movie. Wow. Yeah. What a weird fucking movie Bones is. <laughs> <laughs> I'm watching it and I'm like, I think this is a comedy. You know what it felt like to me? It felt like a thesis movie. Sure. Like a graduating thesis film. Because it's a weird, disjointed little film. Starring Yafet Koto, who would have to be the silver surfer of Larry yes. Cohen's Defender. <laughs> Silver Surfer. Wait a minute, you gotta explain that one. Go ahead. I don't know. I can I can kind of see it. Paint him up. <laughs> shave, shave him bald. Paint him up. He's got the voice. He's got a fantastic voice. Oh yeah. He just plays at first this sort of kind of reprehensible criminal, and it sort of devolves into us kind of being on his side, but then kind of not being on yeah. his side in his relationship with. Well, well basically, yeah. So he, he breaks into this rich family's yard. 
and fishes a rat out of their pool for them. And then he holds them ransom and finds out that they're totally broke, except for a secret bank account that the husband has that the wife doesn't know about. Uh-oh. That's a fight yeah. right there. He sends the husband out to go get the money from the bank account and don't think about getting the cops involved because if you're not back by, I think it's 3 o'clock, I'm going to rape your wife and slit her throat. So it's like, whoa, okay. <laughs> Uh, so then we get this interesting relationship between Yafik Koto, who plays a character named Bone, and the wife played by Joyce Van Patten. Joyce and Van Patten? Oh, wow. The husband goes out, he's played by Andrew Dugan, and, well, he kind of gives up at the bank. Decides to sleep with some brunette he meets. Yeah, he has some relationship with this psychologically damaged thief. <laughs> So uh, he goes and has uh, some sexual relations with her mm-hmm. while his wife is back at home fending off a rapist, Yafet Kodo. Because you have to uh, look at it from his point of view. As far as he's concerned, there's no downside to this. Yeah. So as far as he's concerned, his wife gets yeah. killed. He gets to keep the money and his hands are clean. Yeah. <laughs> it actually turns out that the wife and Yafet Kodo have tender lovemaking. Oh. <laughs> Although why anybody would want to make love to George Van Patten is totally beyond me. But then that's a whole other thing. That's just me. Well, I gotta say, in 1972, she looked pretty good in a bikini. Oh, okay. Well, see, I've never seen Joyce Van Patten in a bikini, so... There's also the weird fantasies that we see Andrew Duggan's character having with him wandering a junkyard. Yeah. Even though it was made in 1972, it's very much a 60s counterculture film. Hmm, okay. You had me a Yafikado... So weird. I didn't know what was happening when I was watching it, and when it was over, I still didn't know what had happened. I kind of picture Larry Cohen showing this for his first distributor, because this also has an interesting distribution history. And the lights finally go up, and Larry Cohen turns to the distributors and goes, So, what'd you think? (laughs) And there's just a sea of faces with their mouths open. What? Yeah, like, what are we supposed to do with this? (laughs) Who are we supposed to show this to? They tried releasing it under the name Bone. They then tried releasing it under the name Dial Rat. Then they took it off the market for about a year and brought it back under the name Housewife. And I've seen this trailer with the trailer recut to make it seem like it's a sexploitation film. Okay. I think in a lot of ways it kind of is. It's just not as sexy as sexploitation films. It's it's a very odd, odd, (laughs) odd movie. (laughs) <laughs> what a weird movie. But I think it kind of sets the tone for his... His entire his career. career. Mm. Yeah. Not afraid to get weird. And I guess in 1973, it is considered a little bit weird to remake Julius Caesar with Fred Williamson, but Black Caesar is one of the best fucking movies ever made. Thank you. Um, no argument. One of the greatest black exploitation films ever made, and it was made by a white Jewish guy. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh my God, this movie fucking rocks. And I remember years later telling some of my friends that, no, this movie was made by a white guy. They did not believe me. They said, there's no fucking way a white guy made this movie. I said, yeah, a white guy made it. What do you want me to tell you? Black Caesar is one of those movies, like Bucktown, which I recently yeah. watched and I reviewed, that whenever people get together and they talk about black exploitation movies, Guaranteed, Black Caesar is going to be in the top five. Right. Everybody has seen Black Caesar. And you can't tell me that Oliver Stone wasn't thinking of Black Caesar when he wrote Scarface. Oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah. Fuck uh, Oliver Stone. Absolutely. No, 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 he's right. Yeah. He is. In a lot of ways, Scarface is like a remake of Black Caesar. But still, fuck Oliver Stone. <laughs> I just love this movie so much. Fred Williams as Tommy Gibbs is one of my favorite movie characters. It's this great classic plot of rising from the streets to become the biggest there is and then when you're that big you fall pretty far and it's just so awesome that they did that and and not only that they did it in like 90 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. There's absolutely nothing wrong with this movie. There is no fat on this movie at all and let's be honest what Larry Cohen did was pretty much take the old style Warner Brothers game Extra movies right. from the 30s and 40s and updated to 70s Harlem with a right. predominantly black cast. And that was a stroke of genius right there. Once you see Fred Williamson and his posse strutting down 125th Street with James Brown saying, pay the cost yeah. to be the boss, if you're not hooked by that, I'm sorry. You never. Yeah. Julius Harris is great in this movie as his father. He came back in the sequel, which I like just as much because then the pops took over yeah. and he was. <laughs> 
<laughs> he was just as rough as his kid. Uh -huh. Anybody tell me they don't like Black Caesar? I just don't understand you. And this movie, as we pointed out, was so successful that the distributors say, we need another one. Yeah. No, like right away, yeah. <laughs> and? Yeah, and Elephant and Harlem followed, but I am far more in favor of Black Caesar than I am the sequel. I think the sequel is probably uneven. It's much more cartoony. The thing I think we can definitely say about Black Caesar is that there's a definite sort of veracity to the film. Yeah. When you have Black Caesar, you can honestly say that it's as much a serious crime film as it is a black exploitation film. Right. Whereas Hell Up in Harlem has much more of a of a black exploitation feel, sort of over the top, all sorts of craziness going on. But I still love Hell Up in Harlem too. But and it's got a great theme song too, right? Yeah. <laughs> if you see Black Caesar, you might as well go ahead and see yeah. Hell Up in Harlem. But it is not necessary. Really, what happens through a lot of the movie? His father takes over, and mm -hmm. we have to go see Julius Harris going crazy, which in itself isn't a bad thing. Right. But it's more on the black exploitation side. Black Caesar is much more of a straight crime yeah. drama. It fits comfortably into black exploitation and crime drama, but it never goes over the top as Hell Up in Harlem does. And I think people listening would probably expect me to be a huge fan of It's Alive and Q, but my favorite Cohen films are Black Caesar, Hell Up in Harlem, God told me to, and Original Gangsters. Because I love Original Gangsters. <laughs> Yo, Original Gangsters. Yeah, see, that's another one. You guys have listened to this. If you like The Expendables, then you need to see Original Gangsters because this is the godfather to that movie. Right. In that, who was it? Fred Williamson, Pam Grier, mm -hmm. the guy that plays Superfly? Ron O'Neill. Ron O'Neill. Jim Brown's in it. Right. Who else am I thinking of? And there was a couple others in there, but it was a good half dozen of these black exploitation stars that he got for this movie. Now, supposedly, this was a film that he did as a favor to Williamson. Williamson already had this idea, but he didn't know how to put it together. Gee, I mm -hmm. wonder why. Well, have you ever seen any of Fred Williamson's direct oh, video? They're awful. Yeah. <laughs> they are. They are downright dreadful. Fred Williamson barely needs a director and a writer behind him, because when you leave him to his own devices. <laughs> <laughs> Shall we say that the product is somewhat lacking in yeah. professionalism? When Fred Williamson is in control of Fred Williamson's movies, it becomes fan fiction. It becomes all about Fred Williamson. Yeah, well, yeah, it's Fred Williamson fan fiction. Yeah, it's all about Fred Williamson. <laughs> have you seen the original Inglorious Bastards? I have. I have not. Which Fred Williamson is in. Yes. Fred yeah, Williamson yeah, Fred and Bo Svensson. Have you seen the American recut G.I. Bro? No, God, no. no. Just the name. It was recut to emphasize Fred Williamson as the main character and re released in the States as G.I. Bro during the black exploitation craze. Wow, no, I've never seen it. I have seen the original Glorious Bat, which I advise everybody to see. Great movie. Yeah, it goes from one thing to another. It goes into almost like this spy type of movie yeah. where they have to get on the train and all this other crazy stuff that's going on and they have to substitute for the original people mm -hmm. that were supposed to do the mission. Right. It's probably the only Bose Vincent movie that I can <laughs> recommend him in because he wasn't the best of actors but he was great in this one for sure yeah from black gangsters to monster babies <laughs> it's alive i think i'm safe to say this is his most successful film financially oh. this and its sequel I, I don't think there's any doubt about that i know that everybody that i knew there's something wrong with the davis baby i mean you know we all went to see that movie matter of fact i believe i might have even seen yeah. that twice well supposedly the first time it was released it didn't do well warner brothers tried it three years later mm -hmm. with that famous tv commercial that gave me fits as a kid the baby carriage turning mm -hmm. there's something wrong with the davis baby what's wrong with the davis baby it's a lie it's a lie oh <laughs> That's so dark. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Starring character actor John P. Ryan as Mr. Davis. Actually, the thing I find fascinating about It's Alive is it's not really about the monster baby. It's more about what this thing does to the Davis parent. Because they both totally fall apart over the course of the mm. film. With Mr. Davis totally denying, that's not mine. That that's my, a freak. That ain't my baby. Go talk to the milkman. And the mother getting just more and more invested in it. <laughs> And the baby acts like a baby. That's a good way to put it. Invested. Yeah, it goes looking for milk, happens to kill the milkman. It goes looking for its mom, happens to kill a girl who maybe looks like its mom. Mm -hmm. Goes to the school looking to play, accidentally kills somebody there. But it never acts like a monster, it acts like yeah, a baby. It exactly. just happens to be a monstrous baby. <laughs> I had always heard the rumor that he had planned a whole long series of this, and each one of these films would give a different explanation for why the baby was the baby. Because, as you know, in the end, when John P. Ryan finally accepts the baby, 
baby has his own, and it gets mm. shot down in a hail of gunfire. Mm-hmm. The last line is the news that there was another pair born up in Seattle, which is where we get "It's alive, it lives again." Mm-hmm. <laughs> With John Ryan being Crazy Ralph, you're doomed, <laughs> doomed, I say. But of course, before we get there, we got God told me to. Okay. Yeah. What a weird sci-fi oh. movie. <laughs> okay. Another example of keeping in mind that he's never asked for a permit in his life. The fact he pulled off the St. Patrick's Day sequence. Mm. Yeah. Or even the street sequences at the beginning. Yeah. It's very much filmed downtown New York, mm. right out in the open. You know, he's not hiding. Once again, you <laughs> recognize... top of buildings and shit. It's everywhere. And this is during the period where he's probably the, one of the most New York filmmakers. Oh, yeah. Around. Yeah. And that every well, that's one reason why we always like his authentic. He's not going to, no disrespect intended, that's Vancouver and or trying Toronto. to... Or Toronto. Toronto yeah. trying to pass it off as New York. He actually films in New York. Now, I get the impression, Des, you're a little bit more respectful of this film than I am. I think that it, it falls apart <laughs> something fierce. <laughs> yeah. It's uneven. I will absolutely yeah. give you that. When we get... Emo alien Jesus. <laughs> yeah. Played by. Oh, God. And he's somebody who turns on to be very famous. Bernard Phillips? By Richard Lynch, right? Yeah. But yeah, once we get into the whole idea of emo alien baby Jesus, <laughs> it, it gets. Totally and absolutely. Yeah, Richard Lynch, that's right, who does go on. Yeah, Richard Lynch, yeah. Character actor. It just falls apart, but up until that point where mm-hmm. Tony Lobianco is trying to figure out what the fuck is going on. Tony Lobianco, who was Robert De Niro before Robert De Niro. Yeah. This film sort of does become a bit like Altered State. It goes in sort of like impressionistic art film kind of thing. But I, I just love this sort of bizarre, overarching, sci-fi, pseudo-religious, kind of weird epic over all these people committing murder because God told them to. And this detective just sort of going off the rails trying to figure out what yeah, happened. Particularly since he's, it's established very early on that he's Catholic, but he's kind yes. of having questions about his faith at this mm-hmm. point. And it's a great title. That title would get me to, to watch. And I do believe I have seen this years ago. And it was because of the title. God told me to. Well, well damn, what this about? Not knowing that it was a Larry Cohen movie or who was in it at all. I just want to see because of the title. Then we get, of course, It's Alive 2, It Lives Again. We're going to skip over the private lives of Edgar Hoover. Why? Because we didn't get to see Broderick Crawford in a dress screaming, I'm a pretty lady. I'd buy that for a dollar. <laughs> <laughs> I've never seen it. Yeah, it's not a very good film. Basically. Oh, I've never seen it either. I would not. Not, not. not everything that he does is gold, because you've got this, <laughs> you've got Full Moon High, the quote-unquote horror comedy about the boy trying to conceal that he's a werewolf from everybody. We've got A Return to Salem's Lot. Oh, my God. God, that was terrible. See, I wasn't too much of a fan of the original Salem's Lot, yeah. even though people talk about, oh, it was such a great... You know, ne- matter of fact, neither one of the adaptations that they did, because they did a remake. Yes. TNT, one yes, with Rob Lowe. Mm-hmm. I didn't think it was That's that right. good either. However, then we get Q, which is a film that Larry Cohen claims he decided, I'm going to... Because he was originally hired to direct as well as write mm-hmm. by the jury. He lasted exactly a day on the shoot and was then <laughs> told, your services are no longer welcome here. Supposedly, according Larry Cohen, he said to the producer, let me tell you what's going to happen. I'm going to go and get myself a deal to shoot another movie. My new movie is going to outgross your Your movie. movie. (laughs) And everybody was, oh, ha, 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 you're so stupid. And we all know what happened. Well, that's the best way to get revenge. Go out and make a better movie. Right. (laughs) So he goes across town to this new releasing company that started called United Film Distribution, which is started by an older gentleman who was on his last legs. Okay. In fact, I think, if I remember correctly, Cohen mentions in the commentary track to the DVD of Q that this was one of only three films that this production company released. And had the script for Q handy. <laughs> I wonder how. Wow. I wonder how. Let me reach into my magic trunk yeah. in the, my car. This is a police procedural in which the villain is not a thief or a murderer, mm-hmm. but a giant wing Serpent. Quetzalcoatl. Yes. <laughs> Starring David Carradine and Michael Moriarty. Beginning of a very long and fruitful relationship. Supposedly, the only reason Michael Moriarty agreed to do this film was because on the spot, Larry Cohen created a jazz song about it. Really? Why does that not surprise me? Because Michael Moriarty... It's squirrel. Yeah, he's yeah. squirrely anyway. He's and Michael said, based on that, he would be in anything he wanted him to be in. Okay. He gives a really great performance in this film. Has this kind of messed up, down-in-his-luck, scenery-chewing thief. The scene of him leading his partners up to the Chrysler building to meet their fate at the hands of Quetzalcoatl while he screams, Eat him! Eat him! Eat him! 
is a beautiful thing. He's trying to get back together with Candy Clark, and meanwhile, David Carradine is trying to get to the bottom of all these skinned bodies being dropped from on high. <laughs> what a crazy fucking film. Yeah, bizarre. <laughs> this is when he takes the idea of the giant monster attacking New York. Mm-hmm. and does something that no one else has ever done. Well, how do you do that? Yeah. Well, <laughs> watch Larry Cohen. And the amazing yeah. thing is, once again, this film, keep in mind, it was done on the spur of the moment. It apparently had the budget of what I've got in my pocket right now. <laughs> and, and apparently he did this also having just total faith in the special effects house that the releasing company put him together with, that they would do a decent stop-motion flying dinosaur thing, which they did, mm-hmm. even if there's only a little bit of the flying dinosaur well, in just, the film. Well, just enough. Don't build me the whole monster, just build me half the monster. Yeah, but there's also <laughs> like this weird weird police procedural thing because it turns out that the reason the monster is here is because there's this ritual serial killer who's sacrificing (laughs) women to Quetzalcoatl. Now this is the film that we've mentioned that got Larry Cohen banned from shooting in New York. Just like he said to that guy who fired him off by the jury, I'll show you. He said to the New York City's Mayor Office of Film and TV Production, I'll show you. Mm -hmm. And turned around and made two films back to back in New York. Very obviously in New York. There's no way you can mistake special effects and Perfect Stranger for happening anywhere but in New York. There are shots in Coney Island. There's a shot to the old cinema place. He shoots from Lindy's on Times Square. All over the place in these films. One of them is really good We've talked about it already on Better in the Dark in one of the obscure movies episode special effects, mm. which stars the very attractive Zoe Lund, Zoe Lundquist, whatever mm. the heck she's calling herself this week. Abel Ferrara's Miss 45. Miss 45, oh yeah. That's a great yeah. movie. And after these two films, we get the stuff. Once again, what the fuck? That's the one with the ice cream <laughs> yes. that turns you into the yeah. ice cream. That turns you into ice cream. Into ice cream, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and Paul Sorvino has the survivalist crazy person. I buy Oh, God, that's another one. And the greatest thing about the stuff is what the fuck is Michael Moriarty's accent supposed to be? (laughs) I have no idea. You know what I'm talking about, Desk? It's supposed to be Southern, I think. I don't know what it is. Michael Moriarty plays a fixer, an industrial spy, who is hired by the other dessert companies. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> to get the goods on the stuff It's because, ice cream wars yes, yes, <laughs> To get the goods on the stuff Because their sales have plummeted And they never really explain what the stuff is All we know is it tastes damn good We know it comes from deep in the earth We know that Tammy Grimes likes it And it eats you up from the inside And then you suddenly start falling apart And spewing white foam Sort of his rendition of the blob in a sort Right of Yeah way. Yeah Weird gelatinous substance attacks the world, right? <laughs> yeah. I think this is the last Larry Cohen directed film to ever make it to the big screen. Really? Okay. I'm not absolutely certain. I know that the ambulance was intended to come to the big screen, mm-hmm. but it was in releasing hell and it ended up being released to direct to video. Because as I remember the stuff, it didn't do big box office, but it did respectable yeah. business during this theatrical run. Now, Des, what did you make of It's Alive, Three Island of the Alive? Honestly, that's something I haven't seen in a long ah. time, but it does really feel like he was trying to sort of explode the premise. Mm-hmm trying to go maybe epic or just maybe go bigger. You, you can't really blame him for doing that in the sequel. I don't remember it being very good. No, it, it's not. It's a good first hour followed by a really bad second hour. Mm. When you get the midgets in the giant baby costumes. <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. Because the premise is that, well, Michael Moriarty plays the John P. Ryan character. And he and his wife, who in this film is played by Karen Black, oh, at the point okay. when Karen That's Black right. looks like she's eating Karen Black. <laughs> They've now totally and absolutely separated. Mm-hmm. He's now... Reduced to driving a taxi. In fact, there's the, the opening scene where he picks up a passenger, a, a pregnant woman. Pregnant woman starts going to labor. He goes, get out of the cab. Get out of the cab. <laughs> <laughs> but he is hired by a pharmaceutical company to help a team of mercenaries. It turns out that what the United States government has decided to do, they've managed to capture all the, the crazy mutant babies. The mutant babies from and, the first two movies. And send them off to an island mm-hmm. that they own, somewhere where they won't bother anybody and nobody will bother them. Instead of maybe taking them to a secure government research facility where they can study them and maybe discover where they're yeah. coming from? Oh, okay, I see. You see, the pharmaceutical company... Gotcha! Be logical, Derek. The 
pharmaceutical company wants to capture the babies to vivisect them and discover what the hell there is going on. And they want the jump. He understands the babies better than anybody. And up until this point, up until the point where they actually go and you see some like cool kind of stop motion special effects killer babies, mm-hmm. the, the film is okay. And then it jumps ahead some 10, 20 years later and we find out that these babies have now grown to adulthood played by midgets in giant baby mm-hmm. costumes. Giant baby costumes. Then the film just falls apart. Michael Moriarty and Karen like decide they're still in love and they bond over trying to help these now adult children and it's, it's a dumb film. Not very good. <laughs> but it's better than A Return to Salem's Lot. Sure. Well, anything is better than A Return to Salem's Lot. I don't know how Des stands on, of course, Wicked Stepmother. I think it's okay. It's, I yeah, think it's, it's, it's over the top. Given what Larry Cohen... <laughs> the circumstances. Yeah, given the circumstances, <laughs> since Larry Cohen killed Betty Davis, <laughs> the one thing we can definitely take away from Wicked Stepmother is don't argue with Larry Cohen on his set. Yeah. Because you will die. At least about one of his scripts, anyway. Yes. So Betty Davis was in this movie. I've never seen this Okay. Wicked Stepmother was a comedy that he put together. It was starred David Raishi of Sledgehammer. Oh, Sledgehammer, yeah. And Betty Davis was playing the titular Wicked Stepmother. It was Mm -hmm. supposed to be like a modern-day fairy tale. Betty Davis starts shooting. Was was it the first day or the second day? It was one of the first days of shooting. And Betty Davis is not happy. Betty Davis is never happy. And (laughs) she... Gets into a confrontation with Larry Cohen. She was just mad because her ass is old. (laughs) She gets into a confrontation with Larry Cohen where she says, Your script is shit. You're shit. You suck. I'm going home. At which point, Betty Davis promptly goes home and dies. But you know how he could have made her fall into line just like that? He said, Okay, well, go ahead and leave. I got Joan Crawford waiting. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Betty Davis would have shut her mouth. At that point, Joan Crawford was dead, though. She was? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think that Chris Crawford died relatively early. I think it was. But then again, maybe she was so senile. Like, you're Cohen. probably right, but they always had that rivalry yeah. all throughout their career. A lot of times that they cut each other's throats to get movie roles. So, <laughs> with their big name dead, mm-hmm. Cohen did a lot of heavy rewrites. So, a portion of the rest of the Betty Davis's role is played by a very unconvincing mechanical cat. And the rest of it is played by Barbara Carrera. Oh. Well, they just explained she changed it to a younger woman well, to yeah. David Raishi. Works for me. And they did some dubbing for Betty Davis's voice, too. Yeah, right? I think so. By a female impersonator, like Las Vegas Well, Legend supposedly, uh, keep in mind, she's got to be at this time, she's really an advanced age. She probably wasn't able to do a lot. But, yeah, don't fuck with Larry Cohen on this set. Matter of fact, around that same period, she did a movie for ABC that was a pilot for a spy type of series called mm. Madam X, I believe. Oh, no, that was in the 70s. I know which okay. one you're thinking of. That yeah, you know what I'm 70s. talking about? Yeah. yeah. I forget who the guy was. Was it Robert Conrad or somebody like yeah. that? It was supposed to be like a backdoor pilot for yeah. a weekly spy type. And she was playing this female criminal mastermind. Right. right? Oh, okay. Yes, yes, yes that's the thing. But Wicked Stepmother, I thought it was interesting. It's not great. It's better than the ambulance. Mm. <laughs> it's a good example of what can be done under brutal circumstances yeah. filming a movie. Then we have, of course, Original Gangsters, mm-hmm. yeah. where he's work for hire. Where the old-timers have to come back and show the young gangsters how it's done. The young gangsters. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the gangbangers who take it over the streets. And yeah. <laughs> the old-timers got to take back like, the hood. Kurt Herron was trying East St. Louis. Something like that, yeah. But it was worth it just to see mm. all of them back on the screen together. There's something about them old Timers that you can't. And that yeah. was it, directing wise. Now, granted, mm. it actually had a brief resurgence around the time of Phone Booth when we had the bidding yeah. war for the Phone Booth script, which apparently had been written so long ago that they had to add new dialogue when the film actually got done by Joel Schumacher to establish this was the only phone the booth only left. The only phone booth left in New York. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah, that, absolutely. That's how long that script had been around. There wasn't any phone booths anymore. This prompted the of Cellular, which apparently was heavily rewritten. Mm-hmm. Though. Yeah, I've never seen Cellular. Cellular's pretty good. It features our Captain America slash Human Torch, Chris Evans. Oh, okay, now I know what you're talking about. Has a young guy who is out on Venice Beach for the day, but his cellular phone picks up the signal from Kim Bassinger. Right. Who is being held by this evil dastardly villain, Jason Statham. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's the last time we're all going to hear those words put together. It's actually a pretty good film overall. And although my favorite character is Bill Macy. Oh, really? has the cop who's trying to start a beauty salon. I've got to see this. Yes, yes. He's, he's, <laughs> it's a great little film. Then we, he did the remake of It's Alive, which he says was a mistake. <laughs> 
<laughs> did he write the remake? Or yes, he they did. Just they adapt his original script. Yes. He's got nobody uh, to blame. That's unclear to me. Yeah. Did he actually write a new script? He is listed as writer. Okay. And he says of it, Cohen has admitted that the remake is dreadful and states it's a terrible picture, it's just beyond awful. He offered up his original 1974 script instead of, of a rewrite, but remarks that it was completely ignored. I would advise anybody who likes my film to cross the street and avoid seeing the new one entirely. <laughs> Ouch. Yeah, right? You gotta like someone with that kind of integrity. Yeah. They'll take the check, but they'll tell yeah. you. <laughs> this is a piece of shit, everybody. Yes. <laughs> Which, to me, that brings up a good point, because you have a lot of people that criticize Alan Moore, but say what you want about the guy. He walks to walk and talks to talk. He takes his name off the movie and yeah. doesn't take the money. Don't take the money. I lost a lot of respect for uh, one of my favorite authors, and Oh, after that, with yeah. pardonable pride, may I say, that I'm compared to okay. Clive Cussler. He took all that money for Sahara and then proceeded to have his own career to yeah. do everything he could to sink the movie. Well, if you felt that bad about it, why didn't you give the money back? And he does not seem to be stopping anytime soon. We don't see a lot of stuff since 2009. Anything since 2009. I imagine he's maybe retired. Wasn't 2009 when his sister died? That might be it. Let's does, see. Uh, did they ever find out what happened? Let's take a look at Ronnie Chase in 2010 was when 2010, she died. Okay. I figured it was around there. She yeah, was shot she, and she killed. Was murdered in like gangland murder or something. Was shot and killed November 16, 2010, while driving home from the premiere of the film Burlesque. Mm. Police concluded that unemployed felon Harold Martin Smith killed her during a random robbery. The thing is, of course, they were very close. She was his publicist for a long, long time when he was just starting out. N not to make light of a serious situation, but the poor woman's last movie she ever saw was Burlesque. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, God. To have the last thing you've ever seen in your mind Gene Simmons. I'm sorry, I mean Cher. <laughs> you ever hear the song they did together? No, I don't want it. <laughs> Just go to Gene Simmons' solo record yeah. when Kiss did the four solo records. I believe it's called Living in Sin. Right? <laughs> uh, now, granted, the, the chorus is We're living in sin at the Holiday Inn. <laughs> what? Yeah, it's got to be one of the worst records ever made. And when your record is the worst of the four solo Kiss records, that's saying, saying a lot. That's saying a lot, yeah. I didn't make that connection, but you might actually be right about that, because I know they were very close. They were a team, so to speak, from his early career. Well, they were cloned from the same embryo, I guess. That's true. <laughs> By emo alien Jesus, apparently. <laughs> okay. Now, should we talk a bit about his one directorial credit in the last ten years? Which is... Pick Me Up. Pick Me Up. Part of the Masters of Horror series oh. in the first year. Reuniting him with Michael Moriarty. I have to watch this Masters of Horror series because I've heard a lot of good things about it. I've heard some crappy things about yeah. it. It's a mixed bag, but there's mm -hmm. some really good stuff in there. Feruza Balik is... Ooh! <laughs> yeah! Is on a, a bus which breaks down in the middle of the Pacific Northwest woods. Rather than waiting for a new bus to pick him up, she decides to hitchhike. And she's walking down the road and she encounters a cowboyish gentleman mm -hmm. and she also encounters a friendly trucker played by everybody's favorite conservative lunatic Michael Moriarty. <laughs> yeah. And it turns out that both of these people are not nice people. And what was your first clue? <laughs> well, in the case of Michael Moriarty, it's about that she had, like, had Lorene Landon hanging from a meat hook in the back. Okay. <laughs> and in the case of Cowboy Man, it was when they went to the motel and they found that he had been, quote-unquote, proselytizing. Mmm. And not in a good way. And not in a good way with one of the young ladies in the motel. The great premise of this is this is a film that pits the urban legend of the guy who picks up hitchhikers and kills them versus the urban legend of the hitchhiker who gets picked up and then <laughs> kills people that picks them up. And it yeah, pits them both against each other and puts Firuza Balk in the middle. It's an incredible, incredible setup for a film. I think it's kind of ruined by a lot of bad acting. Mm. I honestly don't remember it being too poorly written dialogue-wise or even poorly directed. I think it was mostly the acting that kind of cracked yeah. this one. Yeah, I mean, but. Warren Cole plays the walker. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> 
somebody must have watched far too many Coen Brother movies. And what's the name of this again? It's called Pick Me Up. Pick Me Up? I have to see this. Yeah, it's part of Masters of Horror Season 1. Now, there were two seasons of Masters of Horror and one season of Fear Itself. Yeah. Because when Showtime decided we don't want to do this anymore, Mitch Garris went to NBC and they did a third season, which they called Fear Itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Of course, only without a lot of the violence and the sex and the blood oh, and the person. That's awful. Well, we saw the first two episodes. Well, which is the only reason to watch it, because of violence yeah. and sex. <laughs> but for Rosa Balk, I want to see it just for her, because I saw the movie. And people, you should see this movie if for no other reason than to watch Feruza Balk go absolutely, totally, without reservation, batshit crazy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the Craft. Ah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, mm-hmm. my. God. You talk about going absolutely bonkers. The last 15, 20 minutes of that movie, I've never seen few actors reach a level of insanity on screen. Right. <laughs> he does. <laughs> so... To me, and one of the reasons why I think that Larry should be inducted into the Hall of the Great Great Men mm-hmm. is that he, much like Roger Corman, a previous inductee, and with good reason, is an example of the independent genre of spirit. A man who has followed his own path throughout his career. He's never been beholden really to a studio, if you think about it. Mm-hmm. He's done his own movies. When the time came, because you notice around the time when more and more stuff started going direct-to-video is when his process slows down. Yeah. Something fierce. Mm-hmm. And he just yeah. walked away and said, okay, I'll just write scripts. And now it looks like he's not even doing that. I'd mm-hmm. much rather see somebody go out, and this is any yeah. field, on their own terms than just be shut out or squeezed out. And Larry Cohen being on the inside of the film industry, of course right. he sees how things are changing. And he's yeah. saying this is a totally new realm that I'm not mm-hmm. equipped to deal with or I just don't want to deal with, so it's time for me to just get... And yeah, he can keep writing script. The good thing about writing is that as long as you don't get arthritis in your yeah. hands or something wrong with your spine and your brain still stays good. You can do that till you're 99 years old right. you can keep on writing. So yeah, he could make a comfortable living just doing scripts really. And when you get that old, you just don't want to deal with the bullshit anymore. That's got a lot to do with it too. Maybe he just doesn't want to deal with the bullshit anymore. Yeah, as opposed to someone like Coppola who made two or three of the greatest films ever and all of a sudden can't get arrested in Hollywood for some reason. I don't understand it, but he just didn't see the writing on the wall, whereas maybe Larry Cohen did. Right, yeah. right. And you see that all the time with a lot of these guys. We talked about him in the most recent Obscure Movies show, William Friedkin. Yeah. Sure. Killer Mike came out recently, but for Bug, the last film that he did, he did an interview, a really interesting like hour, half an hour long interview, and he talked about how difficult it is to get films distributed these days. Yeah, it's a whole new game. It's a whole new style of filmmaking. Back in the 60s and 70s, you didn't have focus groups. You just went out and made a movie and you distributed it. That's right. it. You didn't have to go to the studio and they showed it to a test audience that came back and said, well, it needs a love story. And right. then you go back, well, okay, you got to put a love... How can yeah. I put it in a love story? That's not what the movie is. We had 78% of the audience say the movie yeah. needs a love, so they must be right. I think we're in a weird time where it's a hell of a lot harder to get a $50 million movie distributed than it is a $50,000 yeah. movie distributed. <laughs> it's kind of telling about where we are as a culture right now. If I was going to do a movie, and me and Tom have actually talked about it, i just go ahead and just do it and put it up on YouTube right. or Vimeo or one of these other things that people are doing. And do that and just get it out the way. Because I cannot even imagine, sure, you get to make this big blockbuster movie, but the stuff you have to go through in order to do it, like I said, and I'm glad that Larry Cohen got out and wasn't squeezed out or just mm-hmm. was flat out told, yeah. well, we don't want your movies anymore. Sometimes you have to be smart enough to know when not to get back. Do you see him as a talking head in documentaries yeah, to this yeah. day? I watched a documentary not too long ago, Tales oh, from the Script. Tales from the Script. He was in it. Oh, yeah. yeah. Cool. That's a great documentary. If anybody is interested about the whole filmmaking process from the screenwriter's point of view, it amazes me that anybody wants to write a screenplay in Hollywood after you've listened to these stories of these screenwriters. And we're talking about people that have won Academy Awards. And they're saying, at the end of the day, it's a bunch of bullshit. Is Richard Matheson in that documentary? Not Richard Matheson. I think his son is in it. Oh, okay. Anyone who wants to know anything about how Hollywood works with screenwriters can just read anything that Richard Matheson's written on the topic. I personally 
believe, I don't think I've ever seen it verified, but I personally believe that he wrote I Am Legend, a story about a man alone in California surrounded by vampires uh, as an allegory for Hollywood. Yeah. One of the people they interview is William Goldman. And right. he says, it's crazy out here because, and it's a line that people have taken quite. He said, nobody knows what they're doing. And that's true. Nobody's making a movie knows what the hell they're doing. Hey, yeah. That's why it's such a crapshoot. It makes me not, well, no, I had fantasies one time yeah. becoming a screenwriter. I said, oh, no, 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 no. See, I couldn't take it because, see, I would cut somebody's goddamn head off. I am not a Hollywood person. I don't think I am. But God bless Larry Cohen for surviving that meat grinder and doing it with such style and being a gentleman. Leaving behind a legacy of kick-ass films, too. Yeah, yeah. And films that weren't compromised by other hands. With the exception, maybe, the later films that he did, those mm. films starting around 1989, those films are his vision solely. Yeah. They're not tampered with. They're not messed with by focus groups or other things. I really hate that. And I've been in focus groups. I've been in focus groups for, you remember when they did the remake of the David Jansen series? The, the Fugitive? Yeah. I saw that pilot about three, four months down in Florida. Mm -hmm. And I was in that focus group. And matter of fact, they had to get me out of there because everybody had finished and I asked for extra paper so yeah. I could tell them what was wrong with it. <laughs> and they said, what are you doing? Yeah. And Patricia said, just leave him alone. He knows what he's doing. And I'm still writing, telling them what was wrong with the damn pilot. And I said, this is not going to work as a series. What happens? It comes on six months later. It's gone. Thank you. It's funny. My wife and I, years and years ago, and some friends of ours, we took part in this. Well, it turned out to be a psychological study on advertising. It was a lie based on, hey, we're going to show you these pilot TV shows. Right. And we want you to give your opinions on them. But they show you the pilot TV show. And then they give you a questionnaire based on what was in the commercials, what was interesting about the commercials or whatever. But I knew what I was in for right when they started playing the pilot, which was what only could possibly be the very first original pilot for Spin City before they reshot it with Michael J. Fox. Oh. And it was abysmal. <laughs> I actually got a little bit excited of that, like, oh, yeah, I'm going to have fun telling them what I think about this show. And then I, I never had a chance. What do you think about Bounce Detergent? <laughs> when I was doing phone banking, one of the things we did from time to time is we would call up people ostensibly to talk about a TV show, to get Ooh. their opinion on a TV show. The one thing I remember is we did this for uh, an episode of Jag where there was a, it was a commercial for like a sanitary napkin or something. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't remember. It was just something that was kind of an odd thing. The first two or three questions were kind of like very general, vague questions about it. And then we'd ask them about, did you remember this commercial for this yeah, thing yeah. that we showed? Well, no. You told me to watch the TV show. Yeah. Well, I, 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 if you told me to pay attention to the commercial, I would have paid attention yeah. to the commercial. So, we know that He's going to enjoy sitting with Ernest Borgnine. Yes, he's sitting right next he's to Ernest Borgnine. Right Ernest Borgnine, probably sharing his little choco pop with him. Sharing his icy. Yes. <laughs> you, you want an icy? With that goofy grin of his, they go either way. Wild eyes. Yeah. <laughs> no, but let me show Ernest, you this. Ernest Borgnine has the wildest eyes of yes. anyone. And when he grins, he looks like a manic frog. He, <laughs> no thanks, Ernest, but would you like to read the script I just wrote? Yeah, right? <laughs> While we were sitting here. Yeah, exactly. It's about a guy eating an icy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And on that note... <laughs> Thank goodness this is not one... The one thing that was said about the last Great Great Men episode, of course, was it was just after Borgnine had died. And thankfully we got to Larry before Larry died. Yes, we were trying to get to some of these Great Great Men before they pass on. Me, personally, I believe in celebrating people while they're still yeah. alive. I hate these bullshit Academy Awards. I was one of the few people, and I had some people actually defriend me on Facebook, which yeah. I didn't give a shit about, but and they were talking about Heath Ledger getting the yeah. posthumous Academy Award. And I said, well, no. If they really want to do something, set up a college front right. for his daughter, instead of giving her a statue that she right. can't do anything with. The man That'll is, probably show up on eBay in about ten years. Right, exactly, which is what I would do. To me, it's kind of ridiculous to be giving an award to some 
somebody after they passed away. And I'd really like to see that Hollywood apparently has started doing this too. Because if you notice, they used to wait till somebody would die yeah. until they give them an honorary Oscar or mm-hmm. the Irving Thalberg Award or whatever it is. They're not doing it now. They, they say, well, let's hurry up and give it to them while they're still alive. Even Christopher Plummer said that himself when he won the Academy Award last year. He said, well, I'm glad they didn't wait till I died until they yeah. gave me one. <laughs> I said, good for you, Mr. Plummer. He was absolutely right. Don't wait until these people die to acknowledge them. Tell them why they're alive. So on that note, let us put the end to this induction ceremony with the administrative. First, of course, Des, if you would like to pimp your wares. Sure. You can find me at dreadmedia.com every Monday for 250-some-odd, well, I don't know when this is coming out, but 200 and several <laughs> weeks in a row, and also some mini-podcasts, I call them, that come out on the same feed that cover various topics, such as comic books, horror comic book movies, all sorts of stuff there and also my dropped d my music podcast where damien and i go band by band album by album Mm -hmm. on full reviews of each record that's it find me at dreadmedia.com well he does have a story in how the west was revived too though yes i do which is still available from pulporkspress.com available Um, as a dead tree version and in (laughs) ebook So if you haven't got your hands on that yet, although I do get email from time to time that people ask me, when is there going to be a third one? And maybe there are other things that Desk could write, too. Mm-hmm. But we will talk about that briefly off air. Anyway, if you love us, if you hate us, if you want to say that... Larry Cohen stinks. I was about to say, a return to Salem's Lot is actually a masterful meditation on small town America. <laughs> Impossible. <laughs> there are a number of ways you can reach us. You can send us an email to better in the dark at earth2.net. That's better in the dark at earth hyphen two dot. Every every time something like that comes up, you know what I always hear? What? I always hear Ralph Wiggum. That impossible. <laughs> I love Ralph Wiggum. Be feel English? That impossible. <laughs> you can also join our Facebook page. Just go to Facebook, type in better in the dark group, pull up a chair, we'll add you. You get to see lots of pictures of hot actresses and steampunk girls that Derek posts. Links to the various movie reviews by myself and Derek and Mark Busquette. And lots of other craziness and silliness and insanity. You can follow all three of us, Derek and myself and Des, on Facebook. We use our real names. We're not hard to find. We're not going under the name of God Told Me To Flame. <laughs> Moody Cat 803 <laughs> I think I'm under my full name on Facebook. I think, I, I think awesome I'm Derek has a blog of movie reviews called The Ferguson Theater. And Tom has Damn Your Ears, Damn Your Eyes, or as we die, like to... Die, die! Or as we like to <laughs> affectionately refer to it as Die, Die. Also, Derek has a blog following what is the most popular new pulp character around, Hands Helen. Down. And Blood and Ink, which covers all the other characters that he Derek creates. All the other insanity that yes. I'm involved with. There are three book publishers that you should also be taking a look at. First up is the aforementioned PulpWorksPress.com run by our good friend Russ Anderson and Josh Reynolds. Josh Reynolds, Joel Jenkins... And myself. That's right. Where you can get, still, How the West Was Weird, Volume 1 and 2, which features stories by both of us, and in two, stories by Des as well, where Mounties fight cannibals. How cool Mounties are cannibals. How cool is that? Yeah. The only thing that would make I, it cooler? I, I, of course, went for a weird northern. Yes. <laughs> the only thing that would make it even better? If there was a giant flying bird. But, uh, you know something? After I saw <laughs> that... <the> sequel. Yes. <laughs> after I saw that cover, folks, if you haven't seen this cover, that is one of the coolest covers. I looked at the cover and you know what I want to write a story what? about? The dance hall girl fighting off the T-Rex with nothing but a chair. <laughs> <laughs> that bitch is bad. <laughs> I usually keep my writing life separate from my real work life, but when I got an image of the cover before the book came out, I was very happily showing everyone I worked with the cannibal Mounties that made the cover and they looked at me as if I was some sort of monster and I appreciated that. I love the cannibal... Right, because 
on the cover. They're kind of doing their own thing and yeah. ignoring everything yeah. else that's going on. All this other insanity. I have yet to. Going on around them. I don't think I've yet to make the cover on any of the How the West Was Weird books. You haven't made the cover. No, I don't think I've, I've made the cover. Well, the cover was kind of like an amalgam of. Yeah. yeah. There was no motorcycle riding. Oh, oh, oh. Well, there's always three. Yeah, I know. Well, you want to go down to the fishing hole, Opie? <laughs> Let's. <laughs> As we were said, let's move on to the next one, which of course is Pro Se Press, the brainchild of Mr. Tommy Hancock, where you can visit Sovereign City uh, and meet its three present extant protectors. Well, the first books are written by Barry Reese, and it's The Adventures of Lazarus Gray, and its sequel, The Adventures of Lazarus Gray, Die Glock. Again, those by Barry Reese. Then you have The Adventures of Fortune McCall, written by yours truly, and soon to come will be The Adventures of Doc Day, written by Tommy Hancock mm-hmm. himself. That's right. Finally, of course, it's time to salute... Captain Ron Fortier and Airship 27. Where you can find, among other things, Sinbad the New Voyages, which will be coming out soon, containing stories by Nancy Hansen, Ian Watson, and myself. Right. They just had Jungle Tales that came out. I should mention before... Tommy and Josh Kill Me, Tales of the Hanging Monkey. There you go. Which recently came out, and if you're a fan of South Sea Island Adventure, this is the perfect book for you. And also coming sometime in the future, soon, New Roads to Hell, the first in the Shadow Legion series. Mm-hmm. Where we invite you to come visit the city of Nocturne. You said early in 2013. That's what it now. looks like now. That's now. tentatively. Tentatively. Oh, okay. It may, By, it may come out sooner. It could. Right now, Michelle Shudo, my character designer, mm-hmm. artist, friend, who is doing the ten illustrations for the book, is concentrating on getting our comic book story, Bad Faith Healer, to Ron before the September 1st deadline. Right. After because that... Is this for Polfest when the I, comic book is going to be? I or? think so. I don't know. Okay. This um, is the Domino Lady thing, right? This is the Domino Lady thing, yeah. Right. Okay. This is going to be a eight-page story in which the 1930s Daredevil doll, as she's referred to sometimes mm-hmm. in the text of the original stories, matches wits with a nefarious man of the cloth. But then she'll do the, the ten illustrations, and then sometime soon after that will be the Shadow Legion Casebook Volume 1, Four for Danger, mm-hmm. featuring solo stories with each of the four main characters of the first book. Mm-hmm. And hopefully we'll give you little clues as to what to expect in the second book. Okay. But if you want to see some of Michelle's great artwork and learn a bit about the characters, you can always go to the Nocturne Travel Agency at welcometonocturne.blogspot.com. And that's yeah. it. Good stuff all the way around, folks. I guess that'll be it for today. Until next time. Once again, we would like to thank our co-hosts. Of course. Desmond Reddick, thank you so much. This has been a wonderful day full of interesting talk and sharing of information and just general kicking the willy bobo. <laughs> just remember, I like to say. permits? We don't need no stinking permits. <laughs> and Des, as always, you are welcome to come back anytime you feel like you do not need an invitation. All you got to do is just drop us an email mm-hmm. and just say, hey, fellas, I want to come back. Well, it's been my pleasure, guys. Thank you. And until next time, all we have to do is ask you, go, go see, see that, that movie. movie. <laughs> Good night. Good night. Thanks, guys. You forget, huh? You make fools of your people. You shame them. They kill you. <laughs> you do this to me after I gave you your chance. Who else am I going to do it to? Huh? You've been listening to Better in the Dark, featuring Thomas E.J. and Derek Ferguson. Special thanks go out to Daz Reddick of Dread Media, the Film Sack crew, Noel and Mike of What's Your Damage, Eric Froman, of course, all the lovely members of the Better in the Dark Facebook page. Better in the Dark once had a baby that came out acting crazy, but it sold it to some couple named Lowen, I think. Wonder whatever happened to her. Send all comments, praise, hate mail, love letters, and pipe bombs to Better in the Dark at Earth2.net. That's Better in the Dark at Earth-2. Net. Please vote for us on Podcast Alley, and why not leave a review of us on iTunes? Hey, maybe you can even visit the Better in the Dark Central site at www.betterinthedarksite.com. And don't forget to check out all the amazing music available at www.b-hyphen.com. Better in the Dark is a Conspiracy Productions presentation in association with the Earth2.net community of podcasts. All material copyright, Thomas D.J. and Derek Ferguson. And the next time, remember that more films should have been made where Broderick Crawford ran around in a dress shouting, I'm a pretty lady. Now there ain't 
turns into snowfall as the city sky reflects the silver street below. And it covers up the cars and the wallflowers see the end at half an hour ago. Another full day. Well, 3.30 o'clock, I was going to bang the hell out of her and cut her throat.